Hey friends, welcome back to the Journal Feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. We're trying to make keeping up with the literature as easy as possible by spoon-feeding it to you through your earbuds. Let's take a quick look ahead at everything that we covered from this past week. First off, is Sim good enough to really teach those tricky things like invasive airway access? Second, can't intubate, can't ventilate, can't even palpate. What's next? Third, now that we're not sending home COVID patients empty-handed, what is the best choice? Fourth, there's a gender gap in medicine. It's worth understanding. And fifth, dealing with an open joint. All right, guys, big news from the journal feed. Starting on April 4th, the journal feed will somewhat nervously transition over to a membership subscription model. The journal feed has been around for more than six years now, and in that time, it has grown to be such a wonderful thing with a team of more than 30 people working each week to provide you with the information that we love to spoon feed. The burden has gotten kind of heavy, though, with websites, servers, technology, and none of it's free. The journal feed will remain free for students and residents, and if money is a problem for you, then just reach out and we're happy to help you. We don't ever want money to be a barrier for patient care. For everyone else, though, please consider purchasing a subscription and becoming a member. There are different levels, and you can pick what's right for you. The podcast will continue to come out in this very same place, albeit with a little bit less content than the members are getting. Don't worry, though, I'll pick my favorite article summaries, and they'll still be coming to you. Now then, this is the audio version of the past week's summaries, which this week were brought to you by the hilarious Rachel Jennings, Rebecca White, Megan Hilbert, and Clay Smith. The first article was titled Emergency Subglottic Airway Training and Assessment of Skills Retention of Attending Anesthesiologists with Simulation Mastery-Based Learning at the Journal of Anesthesia and Analgesia. Anyone who's going to be the person in charge of securing an airway needs to be facile with all their backup options. This includes doing an invasive airway, which is rare. Many people never need to do one, but when it is needed, it's going to be life or death and you need to be practiced at it. For rare things like this, often the best thing we can offer is simulation to fill those gaps where you're just not seeing it in your practice. Is sim enough to teach something tricky like this though? And is that information going to stick if we do teach it that way? This trial was on staff anesthesiologists. These were not EM physicians, but they are our expert airway colleagues. And so I think it's applicable to us also. So these 60 staff anesthetists were on average about nine years out from residency, and they underwent high fidelity simulation training for transtracheal jet ventilation and a bougie cricothyrotomy. In the pre-training testing, the anesthetists had a success rate of 15 and 20% for these procedures. After only two and a half hours of mastery-based learning sessions, the doctors had a 100% success rate at both techniques. At one year after the training, there was still an 80% success rate. So this kind of training really could save a life, and it didn't take that long either. This was mastery-based training, and so they had you repeat the procedure until it was absolutely flawless, and then you had to do it at least another two times. It took only about six minutes to master transtracheal jet ventilation, and only about four minutes to master bougie cricothyrotomy. That's not that bad. Now, of course, all of this was on mannequins, so the real thing is always going to be different, and in good ways and in bad ways. I mean, I personally typically find it a lot harder to intubate a mannequin than I do a real person, but the stakes are a lot lower on a mannequin. Also, this course was only taught by one instructor. 
which probably isn't going to be the same instructor if you decide to do simulation training at your own shop. So, you know, results could vary. In a spoonful, simulation was effective at teaching invasive airway management to staff anesthesiologists, and knowledge retention at one year was very good. Then the second article, titled Success and Time to Oxygen Delivery for Scalpel Finger Cannula and Scalpel Finger Bougie Front of Neck Access, a randomized crossover study with a simulated can't-intubate-can't-oxygenate scenario in a mannequin model with impalpable neck anatomy, out of the Journal of Anesthesia and Analgesia. Can't intubate, can't ventilate situations are rare, thankfully, but you can bet that everything is going to go wrong at the same time if that's going wrong as well. Front of the neck access is scary, and it's tricky at the best of times, not to mention if you have a very anatomically challenging patient. There is equipose as to whether to use the scalpel finger cannula approach or the scalpel finger bougie approach. Which is better? It's hard to say. The Difficult Airway Society favors the bougie approach, but both have advantages. Now, the scalpel finger cannula method involves an 8 to 10 centimeter vertical incision on the front of the neck, then you blunt dissect with your fingers, and then you use a 12 gauge needle to crike for oxygenation. That's then followed up with a Melker cricothyrotomy kit once 95% saturation has been reached. In the scalpel finger bougie technique, again, you do an 8 to 10 centimeter vertical incision on the front of the neck, you blunt dissect with your fingers again, and then you do a scalpel incision in the cricothyroid membrane, followed by a bougie through the hole you've just created, and then over the bougie goes a 6 tube. Now, while all of this isn't classically considered disaster preparedness, I think it kind of fits, actually. So which of these methods is actually better when put head-to-head -head in a simulation environment? Let's find out. There were 65 experienced anesthesiologists who entered a crossover randomized control trial to perform the two airway maneuvers on a modified true crike mannequin model meant to simulate an obese patient where all the tracheal features were not palpable. This model even bled from blood packets, so it was probably pretty much a blind procedure. All right. So, which was quicker? Actually, scalpel finger cannula was 61 and a half seconds faster at reaching initial oxygenation, even though the entire procedure actually took longer, but that's less important. Providers were faster on all of their second attempts after the crossover, but even with that, scalpel finger cannula was still the faster technique, and even had higher first attempt success. By the end of the trial, 88% of participants said that they had actually changed their mind and would prefer to do the scalpel finger cannula technique if they originally preferred the bougie method. Not many switched the other way. So if you're practiced with the scalpel finger cannula technique and you have all the equipment on hand, then great. But the scalpel finger bougie technique, well, all of the equipment is ubiquitous. Any resuscitation room is going to have that equipment. So it might be best to be able to do both. In a spoonful, I'd say perhaps in a surprising move, front of neck access technique with the scalpel finger cannula was actually faster than scalpel finger bougie on a mannequin meant to simulate an obese, impalpable, and bleeding airway. Now the third article titled COVID-19 Therapeutics for Non-Hospitalized Patients out of the JAMA. It has come time that we can actually do something for COVID patients that we sent home. We did what was most important first early in the pandemic, and that was to find ways to treat the severely ill and for prevention. But now we have a little bit more finesse. 
to finesse things effectively, though, as frontline doctors, we need to know the best options that are out there so that we can benefit our patients the best with our limited resources. Let's review four options for outpatient treatment of COVID. First off, we have citrovimab. This is a three anti-spike monoclonal antibody which can be offered to patients with mild to moderate COVID symptoms within 10 days of their onset. The worst thing about this treatment is trying to get your hands on it since there's only so much of it to go around and it's in pretty high demand. The advantages to it are that it's approved for pregnancy, it's more efficacious compared to all its competitors, and it works great against Omicron. So even the NIH approves of it. The second treatment we'll talk about is nirmatrelvir and ritonavir. This is a combination antiviral used in mild to moderate COVID patients over 12 years old, so it can be used for some pediatrics if they're at risk for severe disease progression. It should be given within five days of symptom onset. This one can be a little bit tricky to give though because it's a CYP3A inhibitor, and so there's a lot of medication interactions. You might want to speak with your pharmacist before giving this. On the good side though, it's an oral drug and it works. The next drug is remdesivir, an antiviral drug which is used on high-risk outpatients within seven days of symptom onset. This only comes in an IV form and it has to be given over three days, so it's kind of labor-intensive. The good thing though is that there's lots of it to go around, it's not that hard to get your hands on, and it is approved for pregnancy. Lastly is molnupiravir. This is another antiviral used for high-risk patients within five days of symptom onset if none of the other options are available. It's not as effective as the other options and hence it's not first line and it's also likely teratogenic. It is an oral drug though, so that's easy. So all of these options have pros and cons, but honestly, I'm just happy that we have options. In a spoonful, outpatient therapeutics for COVID are here and they're likely not going anywhere. I hope that in the long term they prove to be more effective than the antivirals we used to have for the flu. There are advantages and disadvantages to all of the options, so weigh your choices. Then the fourth article titled Institutional Solutions Addressing Disparities in Compensation and Advancement of Emergency Physicians, a Critical Appraisal of Gaps and Associated Recommendations out of the Journal of Academic Emergency Medicine. Now, if you've been around the journal feed for a little while, then you know that we've covered that there is a gender pay gap in medicine. Some dismiss this because doctors are often paid fee-for-service, and the fees are going to be the same no matter what your gender are. Now, I don't think it's fair to stop digging there, though. There's clearly systemic factors at play, and we need to know exactly what those are so that we can fix what's appropriate. The Society of Academic Emergency Medicine has put some effort into this problem. In 2018, they made an equity task force. They conducted multiple phases of interviews on disparities in compensation and promotion processes. First asking department chairs, and then later vice chairs and faculty. They used both open and close-ended questions, and collected responses from 53 participants. This identified a few areas to work on. Things like structured promotion practices, utilization of structured mentorship, clear requirements for promotions, and transparency in salary structures. Since the theme here, it's obviously transparency. If gaps persist despite full transparency, then well, at least we're going to be seeing them in the clear of day and we'll understand them, I hope. Once these areas for improvement were identified, they came up with recommendations for improvement and then graded them in what I thought was kind of a cute way, actually. So they outlined the minimum 
that you ought to be doing. And then they set realistic targets for you to achieve. And then they even set kind of stretch goals for overachievers. For a more detailed list of the recommendations, please see the blog. For a complete list, you, of course, will have to visit the source article. In a spoonful, now that we know that there's a gap, the first step is going to be looking damn hard at that gap so that we can see what can be done about it. And finally, the last article titled High Risk and Low Prevalence Diseases, Traumatic Arthrotomy, out of the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. Thankfully, traumatic arthrotomy doesn't happen all that often, but when it does happen, it can be really impactful for the patient's future need of that joint. You'll often be told to have a high index of suspicion for this condition, which is all well and good, but what that really usually means is test liberally. So what are our options for even assessing for a traumatic arthrotomy? This review is going to help us out with that. First though, let's define traumatic arthrotomy just so that we're all on the same page. This means that the joint capsule has been disrupted, usually traumatically, allowing for the possibility of contamination or septic arthritis. Now, as always, you're going to start any assessment with history and physical exam, which kind of sucks on the sensitivity side of things here, only 57% sensitive. And as if you weren't going to get x-rays on these patients, but unfortunately, those aren't great either. It's highly suggestive of having it. It can be highly specific, certain signs like intraarticular free air or things literally in the joints, but even the sensitivity of x-rays is only 78%. The gold standard is the saline load test. You make your own hole in the joint with a needle, load it up with saline, and see if that leaks out the other holes that you're suspicious of. This is not a perfect test either. Human error plays a significant role here, and how sensitive your test is really depends on how much saline you decide to put in the joint. Seems easy enough to just suggest that we do a large volume load every time you do it, and you can get about a 95% sensitivity. But if you've ever had a joint effusion, then you'll know that this is really uncomfortable. Don't bother with methylene blue though, as tempting as it might be, it's colorful, but it doesn't change sensitivities. Obvious answer here might feel like, oh, hey, dude, just get a CT. But honestly, we don't have a lot of good data on the sensitivity of CT for this problem yet. And the literature is a bit of a problem because it's highly focused on just knees, which is the most commonly affected joint, but other joints can also be affected. When in doubt, you're going to want to rope in your specialist consultants. In a spoonful, that was a little review on traumatic arthrotomies. It's important to keep in mind that it's hard to rule out this condition, and so you might not have absolute certainty. The best test you can do is a large volume saline load. All right, and that ends it. Let's do a rapid review of everything we covered. First off, given that mental exercise has proven to be effective, it's no surprise that simulation is also. Sim courses can teach invasive airway management and knowledge retention is actually quite good. Second, if you have the equipment, scalpel finger cannula technique for front of the neck access was faster than scalpel finger bougie in a simulation of a difficult bleeding airway where the anatomy was not palpable. Third, we're all going to be tongue twister champions by the end of this pandemic, which is soon and pretty much becoming endemic. Anyways, antivirals look like they're really going to be part of our day-to-day, -day, and they're never easy to say. Fourth, the Society of Academic Emergency Medicine is taking steps towards narrowing the gender gaps in emergency medicine. We all have to be part of that. And then fifth, nothing is a perfect rule-out test for traumatic arthrotomy. The best thing we have right now is high volume saline load tests, but that's not very pleasant for our patients. Hopefully more CT scan data is going to be in the works and will help with this problem.
Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org. This is unfortunately the last week that we'll be offering the full podcast experience for everyone except members. There will always be free content coming your way through this feed, but less of it. If you'd like to continue to get the full week summaries by podcast as well as everything else that JournalFeed has to offer, consider becoming a member. All the details are at our website. Again, that's journalfeed.org. Our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research one spoonful at a time. Thank you.